Lord, we thank you that you are God who created heavens and the earth. We thank you that you are God who became a baby and grew up amongst us. We thank you that you are God who lived a sinless life but died a sinner's death. And we pray that we'll be able to see you as you truly are, that you will reveal yourself to us. And we pray, we pray these things because knowing that all that I've prepared, all that that is ready to be said will mean nothing unless you do speak to us. And we thank you that your words are powerful and we pray that it will come out and not return to you empty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So recent Kutra, I've just come from All Souls. Well, he, they, they've uh, been uh, working for London City Mission uh, for a bit. But before then, they were uh, at All Souls. And uh, when All Souls was finished uh, uh, in 1824, King George IV presented this church with a gift. And this painting, Richard Westall's painting, called Eke Homo, Behold the Man. It depicts Jesus on the night of the crucifixion. As we read in verse 12, when he was arrested and bound and brought to Annas. There, I don't know if you can see, the faces are shadowy and it's menacing and the arms are stretched out and you can see at least three different hands just around Jesus' face trying to grab onto Jesus, trying to hold, get control over Jesus. But Jesus is the only one who's standing erect there and Jesus is standing calm. And although his, uh, uh, he, he, he's the one who's being arrest, arrested, it looks like, and, and although his um, hands are bound, it looks like he's the only one who is in control. The message of Westall's painting is that despite the fact that everybody else is trying to grab control over Jesus, Jesus only is in control over his destiny. He's the one in control. And it's true. That night, if you think about it, everything goes wrong in Jesus' story. His disciples abandon him. Uh, the, 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 the soldiers come and the people who, uh, people who he loved betray him. And the narrative is, this narrative is usually called passion because it comes from the Latin word, uh, passio, suffering. It's the, it's the place where Jesus suffers. And we'll see how he suffers in this short, tri- uh, short uh, sermon series. But John is, John is very clear that Jesus is not the victim of this story. But he's the author of his fate. And this is how John Ashton, a commentator, puts it uh, about passion narrative. If God is the author of the passion play, Jesus is the protagonist, but also the produ- producer and the director. He's the main character but he's also the producer and the director. He sets the scene. He selects the characters. And remember, actually, how in John chapter 13, Jesus, when the time came, asks um, Judas what you're about to do. Do quickly. And he sends him out. That's when Judas goes out. He selects the characters. He's not somebody who is helpless, even on the night that he was betrayed. Take a look at our text. Judas finds Jesus, we're told in verse 2, because he knew, he knew where Jesus would be. But in verse 4, we're told that Jesus knows everything. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He's not a victim. When the soldiers and Judas come, Jesus steps forward in the same verse in verse 4 and asks, who is it that you want? Taking control over the situation. When they answer Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus identifies himself. He also commands the soldiers, in verse 8, to let his disciples go. 
He does that so that his words, he said, what he said in, back in chapter 6, 39, will be fulfilled. He's the one in control. And remember, a detachment of soldiers came. In verse 3, we're told, detachment could be up to, uh, up to a thousand soldiers. And that makes sense because remember, only a week before Jesus' arrest, on the Sunday, as he enters Jerusalem, people are crying out for him. He, people are saying, Hosanna, um, save us, save us, the king of Israel. And so the Romans, Roman soldiers were nervous, and so they bring a big group of soldiers. And they came carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons because they want to arrest Jesus. They want to overpower and control Jesus, but Jesus won't be controlled. This is how John tells his story. The soldiers answer back to Jesus, say that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And then that name, Jesus of Nazareth, if you think about it, places him in a location and history. It underscores the fact that God became incarnate. God became a human being. It underscores Jesus' human nature. He's the Jesus of Nazareth. But that's what they're looking for. But look how Jesus responds. In verse 5, he says, I am he. In verse 5, the NIV adds that word he there, I am he, but in Greek it just says I am, I am. When they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus steps forward and says I am. And that I am, as you may know, is a special name for God. It's the name God gives to Moses when he asks what he should tell people when they ask him for his name. Back in Exodus chapter 3, and God tells Moses to tell them, I am has sent you. And think about what that name means, I am. All other names are given by somebody else. I'm named, I am named Hugh because my parents named me Hugh. Our names point to the fact that we're given existence. We're dependent being. But I am is not such a name. It says that he just exists, that he existed in the past, I am, that he exists now, I am, he will exist in the future, I am. That's what that means, that he is an independent being, the God who just is. In fact, all other things that exist in the creation depend for their being for him, in him. He's the great I am. That's why he's in control and he's letting people know that he is the one in control by saying, I am. Even though everyone is trying to grab control over Jesus, soldiers, officials from the chief priests, Pharisees, with their deceptions and weapon and power, they will not be able to control Jesus. Jesus is God. He does not depend on anyone. He does not depend on the situations that people are in. Circumstances do not control him. In fact, even the moment of his betrayal, even the arrest depends on Jesus, who holds everything together. Everything depends on that great I am. God is God, once again, Jesus is saying. I am God. I am the one in control. And to some of us, I think this is a frightening news. This is a scary news that God is God, that Jesus is God, that we, in turn, are not. We who tried to grab control over our life, over our situation, over our destiny, over our future, we are not gods. That's a scary thought for many people. 
Because we try to be like God. We try to play God all the time. We try to fool ourselves into thinking that we are independent beings, self-sufficient beings. We deceive ourselves that we don't need others. But that's a self, that's a fundamentally a self-deception. We are not gods and we know that. And with that fact breaks through uh, when our circumstances get tough. When we or our loved ones get sick. And there's nothing, nothing that we can do as we see people dying around us, as we are dying. We try so hard to create our own future and things go, we, we do everything right and things go out of control. We're reminded that we're just you, Daniel and Reese and April and Joyce, or, that we are dependent being, that we depend on God. But you see, that is really a great news that we are dependent being, that God is God, that we are not. Because that means that we can sleep at night. That means that we can rest. That means that, you know, our ta- when people say, people say you're, you have un- un- um, unlimited talents, so you can do whatever you put your mind to. That's not true. We are limited. Our talents are limited. We are dependent beings. We cannot do everything. But God can, and God is the one in control. The I am is in control, and that's comforting. That should be comforting for all of us. And Jesus is in control over this situation, and Jesus is in control over your life. No matter what your situation is, no matter how it might seem like it's spiraling out of control, Jesus is the great I am in control over your life right now. This is how Paul puts it later on in Colossians. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all all things hold together. All things hold together in that great I am. Your situation holds together because Jesus is in control over your situation today. And that fact should be life-changing. And that fact should knock you off your, your, your feet. That's what happens in our text. When Jesus says, I am, a curious thing happens in verse 6. Look at it. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Think about why the soldiers would fall back. Why did soldiers and the people who were there fall to the ground? Well, it's true that Jesus has said that he is, I am, the great God, the independent God, um, God who was and is and will always be. But that doesn't make sense still that somebody would fall. Some commentators said that, say that it's because they recognize Jesus. I mean, I, that seems unlikely because if you think about it, they're Roman soldiers. They probably would not have linked it, oh, Exodus chapter 3, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 30. That's not probably their thought process. Some commentators then talk about how steep the Mount of Olives is, and it's true. It's, it's a very steep um, place, but still that doesn't make sense why they would stumble. They would fall back. Really, what's happening in this moment is, is a bit of a divine muscle flexing. It's Jesus, 
the true reality of who he truly is, God himself, that reality is breaking in. And it's something that happens um, at all times when people are confronted, the reality of God, what happens to them, they fall. They fall as they see God. This happens, of course, in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, when Isaiah hears God, he says, he's a man undone. He cries out, woe is me. I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And I've seen, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He thinks that he's going to die. When Jesus helps Peter to catch a load of fish like he had never done before, he thinks he's undone. He cries out, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We often have this idea, mistaken idea, that that. When we come into uh, come in contact with God, that we'll be surrounded by this serene and peaceful and loving feeling that everything will be will go all right um, with us. But that's not what happens in the Bible. That's not the experience that's recorded in the Scripture. Again and again, when people see God, they become afraid. They become terrified that they might die. They have to, and, and when God and His angels appear to people again and again, they have to tell these people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because they are filled with terror. And it's not just the Bible. Um, it's not, uh, uh, Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, wrote about this phenomenon uh, called Mysterium Tremendum, a fearful mystery. Uh, and a, I, I think a quote uh, from him is coming up. He writes, when he felt close to God, this is what he experienced. I, might, I found myself all at once on the brink of panic. This I suddenly felt was going too far. Too far even though the going was into the intenser beauty, deeper significance. The fear, as I analyze it in retrospect, was being overwhelmed of disintegrating under pressure of reality greater than, than a mind accustomed to a living, living most of the time in a cozy world of symbols could possibly bear. The literature of religious experience abound in references to the pain and terrors of overwhelming those who have come too suddenly face to face with some manifestations of mysterium tremendum, fearful mystery. In theological language, this fear is due to the incompatibility between man's egotism and the divine purity, between man's self-aggravated separateness and the infinity of God. He finds himself disintegrating under a pressure of a reality greater than him. The men fall backwards because they encounter God. Physically, they are undone. But actually, it happens in Aldous Huxley and on many other people. It's psychologically and spiritually as well. When we realize that we are in the presence of something that is infinitely bigger and greater, purer and holier, we are undone. All that we thought were important becomes less important. All that we were seeking to build our identity upon disintegrates. Think about that. If you think, if you build your identity upon your intellect, you think, I am a, I'm somebody because I'm a smart person. And you come in confrontation with somebody who is the, the author of wisdom, the source of all knowledge and wisdom. You all of a sudden think, I, I'm, I can't, I'm not smart. I'm not intelligent. If you think, if you've come, if you build your identity upon um, 
upon beauty, and you come in front of the source of all beauty, you might think, I am ugly. If you build your identity, you try to be good. You do what, what you think is good. You build your life upon uh, this foundation of being good. And you come to the source of all goodness, the source of purity and holiness. You all of a sudden think, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of grace. We are undone. We lose our footing. We question who we are. Isaiah thought he was going to die. Peter said, go away from me, Lord. Men again and again are undone in the face of God. And remember, that's what it means to be a Christian, that we lose ourselves. Jesus says we must lose ourselves as we come to him. And that's what that means. When we come to see Jesus as he truly is, we lose the basis of whatever identity that we were building. And we then are given a new identity. We're given a new name. We lose ourselves in order to find ourselves in Jesus Christ. And we must let God tell us who we are. And Jesus tells us to lose ourselves, um, uh, to find ourselves. And the, the soldiers were knocked flat by the mention of his name. They did it involuntarily, involuntarily. But we can do it voluntarily. We can lay down our lives before him, before the great I am. But it is scary. And I know that many people don't like this. Losing control, losing identity, losing our footing might be scary because we're not sure what would happen to us. Too many of us have been abused, tricked, deceived by people who hold power over us, people whom we've loved. As we give ourselves, they've abused it. And so we are fearful of giving control over this, uh, to, the, to other people. But look at the one uh, who is in full control and what he does. What the great I am does here. When the soldiers come and to look for him, Jesus volunteers himself three times. Three times. And he does so, so that he could protect his disciples. He says in verse 8, I told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. To fulfill his words, I have not lost one of, the, one of these you have given me. You, have, you gave me. Even at the time of his execution, he's protecting his disciples. He's mindful of his sheep. As he said before in chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired men run away when the wolf comes because they're scared, and they, had, they don't have anything to stay. But good shepherd lays down his life, he says. And it's not, it's not the wolf um, that's the danger for us. It's not the wolf. It's God's wrath that is coming before us. And when Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross with his, uh, with his sword, he stops, he stops Peter and he says in verse 11, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup is an Old Testament illusion. The cup is a cup of wrath. 
Ezekiel talk about the cup of wrath. Ezekiel 23. You shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation. That's the cup that Jesus says, I must drink. The cup of ruin and desolation. The penalty for rebelling against God. Isaiah too talked about this cup. And how the one who drinks it will stagger. In Isaiah 54. The cup of judgment is the one that he drinks when the focus of all God's settled and just anger against sin and rebellion finds focus in this one man, in Jesus Christ. All our wickedness, all our sordid thoughts, all the human rebellion, and in fulfillment of Caiaphas's unwitting words, he goes to drink the cup so that he may give his life for all people, for many people. And the one who is in full control gets knocked off his feet. He stumbles on the way to the cross. He's stripped naked. He's nailed on the cross. And he drinks the cup of wrath. He takes the worst so that we won't have to. He's the shepherd who lays down his life for us. And we're so afraid. We're so afraid of letting Jesus be our Lord. Because we somehow imagine our lives to be worse if we follow him. Somehow we think we might know better than Jesus in our situations. We want to be in control. We want to do our own thing because, because we don't want to be undone. But if we saw Jesus as he truly is, as the great I, I am, you will not, I guarantee you, you will not feel this way. If you're standing in front of him, if you saw that it, the, the holiness and the wisdom and the power that he is, and we saw ourselves in front of him as this simp, uh, simple, unwitting simpletons in front of him, we would fall down to the ground and say, God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Help me. And then, if we realize then that God went to the Mount of Olives and then Mount of Golgotha voluntarily for our sake to save us, to lay down his life for us, then we would give our lives over to him. We would be able to trust him because we know that he's not the one who abuses He's the one who gives life, who's come to give us life and life abundant. We will want to have a relationship with him. We would want to follow him. We would want to pray to him. We, want, we would want to obey him in all things. For the one, for the shepherd who laid down his life for us. So in this next couple of weeks, um, the last uh, weeks of Lent, the time when we discipline ourselves, and this coming Holy Week when we remember, when we, the church sets aside to remember the greatest week of uh, the mo- most important week of Jesus' life, let's reflect on who he is. Let's see who he is, the man in control, the man undone, the man who gave his life for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much that he became our Lord, that he became our Savior, that he became our servant, that he became our shepherd who laid down his life for us. We thank you that he is the great I am, that we are not. Help us to trust you. 
Help us to lay down our lives before you and help us to obey you and crown you as our Lord in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.